Hello and welcome to the Muscle Engineer Podcast. I am your host Sotak Andre and this is episode 9 of the podcast in which I'm about to be joined by Dr. Brandon Roberts to discuss some concepts related to periodization and various methods of implementing it for bodybuilding. Brandon has a PhD in muscle biology and is currently a postdoctoral fellow with research interests that include the molecular pathways that are involved in muscle regeneration and resistance exercise adaptations. Aside from being a peer-reviewed researcher, he has written articles for Stronger by Science, which is Greg Knuckles' website, and Ellen Aragon's research review, to name few of the many. In addition to his academic pedigree, Brandon also works as the Director of Research and Education and as an online coach for The Strength Guys, a very well-known and respected online powerlifting and bodybuilding coaching company, and also competes himself as a natural bodybuilder. I initially wanted this episode to be more of a theoretical one, where we dive deep into the theoretical concepts and... um, methods behind periodization for bodybuilding but it turned out to be a much more practical one and I don't mind that and I don't think you will mind it either. During our conversation we defined a couple of um, fundamental concepts related to periodization and we discussed the history and development of it but we also give a ton of practical insights when it comes to taking periodization implementing it into your own bodybuilding routine and I also brought up the seeming contradiction between the recent method of increasing number of sets during an accumulation phase as popularized by Dr. Mike Israel, as opposed to a more traditional method such as the one that uh, Brandon usually uses and the one, for example, someone like Eric Harms would use. And I also give my own uh, contributions in the form of a couple of my top tips when it comes to maximizing arm growth while keeping your elbows healthy. So there are a ton of practical insights and takeaways you can just take from this episode and implement right into your training. And um, I hope you will enjoy this and you will find it useful. Also, make sure to stick around until the end if you're interested in some of my own conclusions and thoughts around this whole topic of periodization and what I think would be the most useful and um, most relevant way to look at uh, periodization and how you should implement it into your own training. So without further ado, here's episode 9 of the Muscle Engineer Podcast with Dr. Brandon Roberts. Brandon Roberts, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. I'm glad we were able to schedule this. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I just um, I just gave a couple lectures on periodization, so it's good timing. Um, reviewed the literature and such, so I think I've got some good stuff for you. Awesome. So um, before we get into periodization itself, what got you interested in the whole topic of it, and how did you end up teaching a course on it at the university you work at? So... We have a kinesiology department, and I didn't teach a whole course per se, but I had two or three guest lectures, and the uh, you know the course instructors, or just a, a assembly of professors, are like, "Oh, what are you interested in?" Um, and I was like, "Oh, periodization." I'm, you know, I've heard a lot about it, but um, and I started teaching this course last year, but you know, I don't know the underpinning of it. I don't know the history. It's kind of like briefly covered in textbooks, and unless you really dig into it, it's hard to tell what's going on um and then even more so what's like true and not true and what's kind of like dogma versus applicable awesome and uh, i guess your roles as a coach and uh, your interest as a bodybuilder yourself have definitely played into this and it was useful for those avenues too yeah for sure i use a couple different formats for me and then athletes just kind of vary uh, depending on their goals and stuff so knowing I guess the the science behind all of them and when and where to use them is pretty cool too. And I had a a short stint in strength and conditioning where in sport, it's much different than physique or powerlifting too. So we'll we'll cover that a little bit of that. Sure. So I always like to start with the beginning and I like to define things for everyone just so we know exactly what we're talking about and everyone is on the same playing field. So what exactly is periodization and how was it developed? Okay, so... Periodization, it doesn't have a kind of formal definition. If you look through papers and textbooks, everybody kind of has a spin on what it means. But I'll give you a simple one. It's the uh, the planned distribution of training load 
and kind of content for how you're training in a periodic basis. So a certain period, say a year, a month, uh, a week, whatever. So that's kind of the, the basics of it. Now we'll get into some more detailed definitions a little bit later because it's kind of molded over the, the course of the past 50 years. But originally it was developed by a Russian kind of physiologist named uh, Leo Metveev. And that was back, you know, in the 50s in Russia in the Olympics. And Russia did really well in the Olympics for, for that time period. And they also had this kind of affinity for structure. So they really liked planning. So when he kind of developed this periodization, everybody else kind of saw that they were winning. They were like, oh, well, this, this must be some secret, like, coaching tool that we're not using. So that was kind of the basis of it. And then people started adapting it. The different countries kind of either supported it or said, no, this, this is not really like an applicable tool. And it was all based around the general adaptation syndrome, which is kind of this stress. So you have an alarm phase where you dip after a stress. You have a resistance phase where you kind of adapt. And then if you are kind of constantly bombarded with this stress, you have an exhaustion phase. Um, so that's the, the GAS, which is if you look at the, the textbooks, it's pretty much the theory underpinning periodization. Awesome. And uh, that should give people a <laughs> brief outline. Because, yeah, definitely um, periodization has uh, often you see people bring it up. And like you said, um, how do you define it exactly definitely varies. And um, like, I mean, a good relationship with Mike Zrittel and he did his um, PhD under Professor Mike Stone, and he was a um, key figure in uh, the development of the theory behind periodization. Oh yeah, yeah. The um, kind of when I started writing my articles on it, that was the the starting point. Uh, Mike Stone did a paper in 1982 that just really laid it out well, and then it proceeded to grow. I think there's probably 40 to 50 studies using periodization now, so it's definitely good place to do your PhD on it with him. Yeah. So there are a couple of key concepts that are usually thrown around and come up when uh, people discuss periodization. Things like um, mesocycle or a microcycle or um, even things like specificity or overload and um, even something like fatigue or fitness all of these um, or even the general adaptation syndrome you mentioned could you just maybe i know the question it was a bit vague but um just define all of these briefly so everyone can understand what exactly is for example a microcycle yeah for sure so if we think from biggest to smallest we'll start out with a macro cycle most people consider that a year Sometimes it can be shorter, sometimes it can be longer, but the traditional macro cycle is like a year. Uh, a meso cycle is like a step down from that. So you're looking at four to six weeks, uh, depending on the coach and you know the circumstances. But it's basically a smaller block of the macro cycle. And then even smaller than that, um, you have the micro cycle, which are generally uh, a week in time period. So, so you'll have four to six microcycles in one mesocycle, and then, you know, maybe 12 mesocycles in a macrocycle. So that's kind of how I explain it in general. You had one other question there. What was the other, like, other concept you wanted me to t touch on? Um, Just some essential concepts related to programming itself. So things like specificity or overload or even fatigue or fatigue management. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So other than the general adaptation syndrome, there's uh, another model kind of a theory, if you will, called the fitness fatigue model. And this is the idea that as you accumulate fitness or adapt to whatever training you're doing, you also accumulate fatigue. So, and if you Google it, there's some pretty, pretty simple images where these two lines come together, right? So to show your fitness, you have to dissipate the fatigue. Um, and this is where different cycles come in, where Maybe in the beginning of your uh, macro cycle, you do a lot of high volume stuff. And then over time, you transition to lower volume, but you're creeping up that intensity and the specificity over time to hit your, your event. So if it's a powerlifting event, you know, maybe 12 to 16 weeks out, you're doing more volume and you're letting that kind of glide down. And then as we get closer to the competition, we're focusing on just the competition lifts 
at a high intensity and the frequency usually changes a little bit too so i think that's that's the basics yeah and those concepts can definitely be integrated in a properly periodized plan and i'm sure a bit later can we touch on how they exactly would be connected in order to set up a plan that makes most sense but um before we go into that i think it would be useful to address the different kinds and types of periodization that people would use or at least hear about usually there are three big uh, i don't know if it's fair to call them categories so usually there is a linear periodization model a block periodization model and then there is some sort of an undulated periodization model and of course these need not be mutually exclusive but um, many people view them as such so could you please um, address maybe one at a time what are the key characteristics of them okay yeah of course so you're right. These are the basic three we'll call them concepts, if you will. We have linear, where you'll start out at a maybe a higher rep range. Maybe maybe you do three sets of twelve. Then the next week you do three sets of eight. And the next week you do three sets of four. Where you're going kind of up in intensity, but down in overall reps. So that would be linear, and you can stretch that over all kinds of different time periods. Block would be something that's used a lot more in strength and conditioning. And that's a maybe a, a mesocycle, so four to six weeks, where you focus on one type of adaptation. And maybe it's power, right? So you're hitting those low reps, maybe one to three reps in all of your training. And then so after you do maybe power for a, a block, you would switch and do strength for a block or hypertrophy for a block. And kind of those traditional rep and set schemes would fit into that block concept. And then undulated periodization, there's two types. There's daily undulated, where you go maybe Monday, you do sets of 12, Wednesday, you do sets of three, and then Friday, you're back up to like six or something. So it's not really linear or block, right? But you're doing different types of reps or schemes each workout. And then weekly is just maybe where you say, Unlike linear, you don't go from high to low. You you say, all right, we're going to do 12, and then we're going to do sixes, and then we're going to do eights, and then we're going to do tens, and then we're going to do fours, right? So that's kind of the weekly aspect of it. But those are the main three concepts. Yeah, thanks for that. Another concept that um, is um, becoming more popular these days, I think, is um, modern or integrated periodization. Essentially taking all these concepts and uh, integrating all of them into one uh, structured, well-thought-out plan instead of uh, viewing them as mutually exclusive or connect one or the other and something that cannot be merged together. So um, how could all of the these three components be integrated in a training week and then maybe a training month? So I actually use a more of an integrated approach with all of my athletes and myself, especially powerlifters, because depending on your goal, so we'll just use powerlifting for an example, we might think that uh, maybe undulating is a little bit better or maybe people just prefer a certain type of, of method. Um, I really like linear periodization. It's very kind of linear obviously but uh i just like the, the form of it every week i go in and i do a, a little bit more weight a little bit fewer reps so for my big three so my bench deadlift and squat i'll use a linear approach and then underneath that so maybe for my my accessory work or my volume work basically for my bodybuilding stuff i'll say all right well we kind of know that you can do pretty much any rep range annual hypertrophy uh, some, rep, some rep ranges are just easier to accumulate volume in. That's why we have that 8 to 12, and that's the, the classic hypertrophy range. So I'll say this month I'm going to do my accessory work in that 8 to 12 range while my big three go linear. And then maybe even if I want to throw something else in, I could have kind of blocks of uh, more accessories, maybe like arms or something, you know, something smaller that I'm not as concerned with that are always at a, a very high rep range, um, maybe just because I like it better. So that's how you can kind of interplay them. It's hard to explain. When I when I teach these classes, I have a whiteboard and I'll kind of draw everything out and go through it and point it out. Uh, and it makes a little bit better sense, but if you use your little bit of imagination, I think you can see how it would work into one training program. Yeah, sure. So if you take um, training weeks, let's say you do the same body part twice a week and even if you do Monday you use um 
6 to 8 rep range, something like that. And Thursday you use the 10 to 15 rep range. That's already undulated. And then if you also increase the weights week by week, then you also have a linear component to it. So um, you already integrated two periodization models in that. When you said that you follow a linear periodization model for your main lifts, is this for hypertrophy training, for muscle growth outcome, or simply to get stronger in general? I like to use my big three because I'm not personally not like a power lifter, not even super strong or anything. Um, so it's it's always bodybuilding based work and there's no kind of evidence that one periodization scheme works better there's actually a meta-analysis i think this year came out on hypertrophy and periodization and it basically says you know there's no real you know evidence to say we should be doing a certain type so i like to do it for strength and what i do is over six weeks we'll say i'll go linear and i'll try to across each mesocycle increase my weight but um, within each mesocycle I am doing linear, so each week I'm doing more weight and less reps. So it's a way to kind of compare. I think on Facebook I posted a comparison of my one of my athletes who I use linear with. And you can see just the slight volume uptick each mesocycle is what you're kind of going for. Yeah, so um, if you look at January, February, the trend is upward. But if you look at the week one to four um, in January, for example, then the trend is downward for the volume. Before we go back into some more practical stuff, I'm glad you've mentioned that um, there isn't a whole lot of data around um, periodization for bodybuilding because uh, many people seem to think that or they almost portray it as if there were a solid 50 studies showing that this particular periodization model is better. But um, before we go and look into a particular model itself, just periodization in general, what does the science say about it for bodybuilding outcomes? And by that I mean how big of a of an impact is it going to have? And I know you can't give a solid answer, but just as a theoretical uh, figure, because if you think about it, any variation you do in your training could be considered uh, periodization, even if that person isn't aware of it. So I imagine that would be hard to set up a training study with periodized and non-periodized training, because then even if you include something like an easy week in the middle of a 12-week study, then that could be considered a periodized plan. So it would be hard to set it up. Yeah, definitely. So... And there's not, I think, I want to say Schoenfeld is working on a meta or a systematic review or something right now, because the one I saw, it was trying to compare hypertrophy across different periodization styles. And, you know, there are a lot of studies, but there's not many studies that measure hypertrophy in a good manner, right? So if you have all these studies, say we have 20 studies, and five are using like skin folds, five are using ultrasound, five are using DEXA, you know, and then another five are using biopsies. So they're looking like at the muscle. It's really hard to compare without a constant outcome measure. So what the, the it was in Peer J, which is the journal. Uh, and it basically, you know, said there's no, there's no difference. But my interpretation was that they just don't have enough outcomes to even say if there would be a difference. It's just so kind of like underpowered that maybe there's a 2% difference, but ultimately we don't know. Now, like you said, pretty much everyone, even if they don't mean to, are kind of periodizing their workouts. For example, in the old school, they would go in and they would believe the idea of muscle confusion, right? So they would do you know, sets of eight or sets of six or something. And then they, when they got tired of that, they'd go in and do sets of 12. Well, that's kind of periodizing your workouts. Yeah, that's weekly. <laughs> yeah. And then most college-age students, right? And this is when I first started personal training. That's kind of the demographic I was training was professors and college-age males and females. Well, they have this thing called a winter break, right? So you would work really hard with them for 12, 14 weeks, and then they would have two weeks off. So that's another type of form of periodization, really, if you think about it, because of daily activities, daily life, you know, traveling, everything kind of comes into play here when we're talking about manipulating training um, variables. So yeah, I think you're right that it's been around for a while. It's just what people call it and how people think about it is 
um, different depending on who you are. Yeah, because um, I even got into arguments at the gym over this and not even position itself, but simply tracking my workouts like someone saw me ticking the boxes in my phone or something and asked me what I'm doing I told them what I'm tracking my workouts and he replied well um, I haven't seen any IFBB pro inputting his sets in his phone <laughs> <laughs> and that's such a weak argument on so many levels but if you look at the, the elite natural bodybuilders they definitely track their workouts maybe not like all of them all the time but they're trying to progress you know the loads and push the weights and things like that that's pretty normal so that's what i told him that uh, the best naturalists are doing just that and um honestly i'm not really interested in what phil heat is doing because i'm not phil heat and you're not either so um frankly it's not really relevant and some of the smartest guys i know like um i don't know if you're familiar with any of them but guys like scott stevenson or jordan peters or um or even the whole um DC crew, the Dante Trudel, and pretty much most um, sane and uh, well put together bodybuilding programs have some sort of a tracking or logbooking element incorporated into it, and they have some sort of a progression underpinning. So most um, reasonable programs won't just make you go into the gym and just lift whatever until you can't lift anymore, and then go home and then repeat the process again. One of the things that's been on my mind for a long time is this, I don't know if it's a conflict, but this seeming conflict when it comes to periodization for bodybuilding itself. Mike has popular, Mike Israel has popularized this approach of what he calls, well, he first popularized the MRV concept and recently came out with the Volume Landmarks book. And he has outlined this, I think, in many places now that he likes to start at what he calls the minimum effective volume and then go up microcycle by microcycle throughout the mesocycle to the maximum recoverable volume and kind of deload and repeat so essentially what he does is let's say you start at 10 sets and then you go up to 18 sets increasing um, the number of sets you do for a given muscle group by two each week and then you also increase, try to increase the weights while, at least that's what I do. I try to stay in a certain rep range. So instead, so it has some linear elements and definitely has um, undulation components because I don't do the same rep ranges all over, over and over again. But I'm not um, decreasing volume microcycle by microcycle as opposed to someone like yourself from what i understood and um, i've seen eric Harms do the same in or make the same recommendations in uh, his um, pyramid book so what do you think about these two um, seemingly opposite approaches although i guess if you look at them more um, outside perspective they are not that opposite but still yeah yeah so i think that i like the way mike has explained the volume approaches i've not read all of the books but i've read quite a bit of his work and this idea of kind of volume benchmarks it's been around since the 70s or 80s just not like formally given a name so it's it's really good to simplify it for the for the general population, you know, the fitness population to say, oh, here's what you want to aim for and here's how you can get there. So I really like that that approach. The thing that I kind of, I guess, if you're going to put uh, Dr. Helms and I kind of the same side, if you will, I think it's a little bit more conservative to compared to what Mike likes to do. Because if you're working with someone for a really long time, and you know they they buy in right and they say i understand that muscle grows really slow we actually don't even know how fast muscle grows but you know i'm 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 okay not getting injured and slowly deloading every 4 to 5 to 6 weeks um rather than pushing you know adding two sets a week or however you want to do it and then kind of once i hit the maximum um recoverable volume we kind of deload or whatnot so i, I think that's the main difference is just being more aggressive versus being more conservative. And I, honestly, it ha probably has to do more with personalities than anything else in coaching. But yeah, I, I like both of them. I think if you're an athlete, right, if you want to be an elite athlete, the more aggressive approach, and they talked about this in their roundtable on uh, Jeff Nippard's podcast, it may be better, right? Because if you want to be the best, you want to get there quickly and you don't really care how, how long you stay there because if you're young enough, you know, and if you're in your prime, you'll be there for long enough to keep yourself happy. Now, if you get an injury going up, 
quickly, that's when we have issues. But, you know, elite athletes are kind of hard to injure anyway. They're very resilient. So I think I think that's the main difference. I don't I don't think either approach is like better. It's just different kind of concepts. Yeah, well, I always try to keep the context and the perspective in place. So again, that's why I try to <laughs> clarify that it's not that big of a conflict as <laughs> some people like to make. Oh, let's see, prepare the popcorn. I highly respect both of them and both of them are trying to figure out what works the best for them and for the clients they work with. And that's what I try to do as well. So um, if we take the bigger picture approach, both of them are still uh, doing enough volume and using heavier weights over time and um, focusing on the proper execution so so that's great and that's the foundation right and it would be so this is kind of a sidebar but it would be really interesting to see if certain types of um, kind of client athletes prefer like one method over another so maybe it's just that Mike gets some really like aggressive type people who just love to push 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 whereas you know Eric doesn't get that as much and that could be, you know, a factor too. The population plays a big role in it. So I don't, I don't know. Oh yeah, but uh, I still find it funny that they consider him the conservative guy or the <laughs> the moderate guy when he coaches uh, Bryce Lewis. <laughs> that is true. Bryce does some pretty crazy weights. So. Yeah, it's just I don't know. I mean, for myself, I just don't see much sense to um, if you keep the rep ranges pretty narrow, then it's fine to go from. 12 to 10 to 8 I guess but um, if you're going to view volume as the main driver as long as um, you don't do anything stupid with the rep ranges as long as you don't start comparing doubles with sets of 50 or something as long as you are in that 8 to 12 6 to 15 something like that if you consider um, volume the main driver then it would make sense to keep in a moderate rep range and try to increase that and I think what Mike does is especially valuable for um, once you get to that point and you try to bring up a particular body part. So if you have a body part that you want to grow specifically, then I think that's fine to keep the rest of the body parts at a more moderate volume, maybe something like 8, 10 sets, something like that per week, and then push on maybe a body part or two per week. And increase the volume for those two, one or two muscle groups. What do you think about that approach? Or how would you set up a specialization phase essentially for a bodybuilder? I'm doing this with two athletes now. And I did it with myself back after I competed. Because they're like there are just sometimes areas that don't want to grow. Maybe it's genetics or whatnot. But to give you an example, I have an athlete who wanted to develop his back and his kind of shoulders a little bit more. And, you know, you get feedback from judges when you step off stage if they're if they're good. They'll say, oh, you know, if you work on this, you come back, you'll you'll do a little better. Overall, you obviously want to grow your whole body. But maybe maybe when you first started training, you just only did chest and no legs or something. Not that abnormal. And so your chest is a little bit bigger and for working on back, I would say, you know, all right, we're going to take maybe two to three sets off of your chest work because we can maintain your hypertrophy with much less volume than it takes to increase it. And we're going to take those two or three sets and we're going to put them on some, some vertical or horizontal rows because you have, and, and I've, I've not, not really found a good way to describe this, but you have a kind of a reservoir of energy such that you can hit fatigue pretty easily if you just add volume everywhere, right? And so specialization cycles allow you to kind of shift volume around just a little bit so that you can still recover at, as the same that you would if you're doing everything evenly, but now you can focus on maybe a back or a shoulders or an arms type movement. So I, I think a lot of people do that. That's not too um, kind of odd but I don't do it for very long. So I'll only do it for probably maybe three mesocycles max. Um, so 12 weeks, 12 to 14 weeks. I think that's enough to kind of make it up because you don't want to create a, a different um, imbalance while you're doing it too. You don't be like, oh, well, you know, we inadvertently hypertrophied something a little bit more than we wanted to. Those are my kind of thoughts on that. Yeah, and again, that's uh, <laughs> very similar to what... Um... I've heard Mike describe in specific conversation that he does this very similar. I think, um, yeah, he had a recent video on Omar Isaf's channel when he discussed um, 
this exact topic, bringing up a particular lagging body parts. And this was the idea. You take a body part or two, you kind of hammer those for mesocycle or two, then maybe do a mesocycle or two of evenly distributed volume, or simply you can just shift your attention to other body parts and um, bring up those a bit more and keep repeating the process. Yeah, and one thing I will say you have to be careful of when you do that. Um, so I personally get uh, elbow tendonitis if I, because my arms are probably one of my weaker parts. And as a bodybuilder, that's kind of sad, but it just happens to be that way. But when I try to do an arm specialization cycle, I'll get tendonitis after probably like six to eight weeks of extra arm volume so it's like all right well i know my limit there maybe like every third mesocycle i'll just throw in an arm specialization mesocycle so that's how i deal with that personally but i i will add too that it's really nice to see a lot of the bigger evidence-based fitness people on the same page because like i don't i don't have a, a chance to read and watch everything everyone does um, but we're all drawing from the same like scientific literature and somewhat the same experience personally or coaching. Uh, and so when you see people saying very similar things, it's really nice that, you know, there's probably evidence to support that versus like, oh, you know, X, Y, or Z does it this way. And you're kind of agreeing with them. It's like, yeah, yeah, we all, we all came to the same conclusion. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of, <laughs> I have a lot of things to say, so hopefully I won't forget any of them. But, um, what I usually do is I, um, and that's why I started my podcasting actually, cause, um, I just love podcasts and, uh, I, whenever I do anything uh, that doesn't require my attention, like whenever I fold the laundry or I start prepping a meal or something i always have something going in the background and often it's fitness related often it's not but it's always something and <laughs> i have a couple of people that i like to keep up with and mike is one of them eric is another one so i pretty much try to get through anything they um, create and as far as arm development that's honestly not something that i've been worried about for a long time because my arms aren't anything uh, to brag about but they are compared to my body they are okay and i just honestly don't really care about them at this point so like i haven't run <laughs> probably since i started lifting because when i started that was essential i was doing <laughs> like most people i would imagine but um since then like my chest has been a weakness for a long long time before i learned how to properly execute the movements and then it came up and now my back i uh, train my lats for a long time they were a um, key area and now I'm trying to grow a bit more uh, the upper traps and neck area, kind of get that Bane look, <laughs> that powerful look. So arms is arms and legs are not something I think I will particularly give attention. But honestly, simply just improving execution. And one of the guys, I don't know how much you follow, if at all, uh, Ben Pakulski's stuff, but Honestly, when it comes to execution and muscle growth, he's one of the my go-to guys. And um, uh, one of the guys who works at his gym, Joe Bennett, just posted on Instagram a couple of days ago an image essentially saying how you get big arms. One, pick your parents right, which I guess you don't have anything to do <laughs> to do about. Yeah. Second was um, keep your elbows healthy. And three was look at point one, I think something like that. <laughs> Yeah, 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 definitely. Maybe this helps, maybe not. But what I've what has helped me a lot um, with uh, not dealing with elbow issues was simply not being attached to particular movements. So I hardly do any of the conventional uh, tricep exercises. Like I don't do score crushers with barbell, especially the tray barbell. I don't do um, those overhead dumbbell extensions. When you grab the dumbbell with both of your hand arms, I don't really do barbell close grip presses or do i do what i like um right now which is one of my favorites is um, an incline close grip by close i mean a shoulder width so kind of like you tuck your elbows and when they get next to your body that's your grip width so not uh, not your um, hands touching each other but by any means so a decent grip with um smith machine press so essentially a close grip but done on a incline bench because that's one of my chest movements at the moment so i need a bit more. you can never have a too big of an, of an upper chest and i honestly prefer the the smith machine for any kind of 
pressing movements. So that's that's one movement I do. But other than that, ton of cable work, some dumbbell work, and what I really like to ensure is to have proper alignment. By that I mean that my um, elbows are pointed up towards the ceiling if I do some sort of a skull crusher e movement. And I make sure that I only extend and flex my elbow so there isn't any rotational component. And that's for the bicep exercises too. So for example, if you watch the guys do um, something like a preacher curl with a barbell, you will almost always see one, their shoulders moving up and down. And two, you see that rotational component when they grab a barbell because their elbows aren't perfectly perpendicular to the um, bench. So essentially they are moving it inside and outside essentially. So they are rotating it on the load and uh, over time that can be definitely bad for your elbows. So I'm not sure what your exercise selection is or how you perform them, but those two would be some things I would pay attention to. Not doing things that hurt and making sure you are only extending and flexing through the elbow, not rotating. I, uh, I, I use much the same movements. I really, I don't do skull crushers at all. And any like the overhead, overhead dumbbell presses, I don't do those. Most of my stuff is cable work, honestly. Part of it is, you know, it's really hard to increase weight in your arms. So to progressively overload your arms, like I feel like I've been curling the same weight in the dumbbells for like a year now. So because the change is so big relative to how much you're lifting. If you're in a good gym, maybe you have dumbbells that are go up by 2.5 pounds or, you know, one kilo or whatnot. But most of them, it's like, it's a significant... Two and a half. Yeah, yeah. So I agree with you, definitely. Yeah, and the funny thing is that I was actually looking back (laughs) through some older videos and I was using, especially for arms and even for hamstring, even for Romanian deadlifts, I was using weights that right now the ones I'm using are way lighter and uh, all of my muscle groups are way bigger. So (laughs) there's something to that. For sure. I have some of my logbooks back from probably like seven or eight years ago before I got into kind of the scientific side and it's it's kind of sad <laughs> but you live it you learn that's part of it right yeah um and one of the unfortunate things like i try to even with this podcast i try to unite the communities because i have friends from like i obviously am friends with a lot of guys in the evidence-based uh, circuit but then i also have a lot of practitioners who are friends with ben pakuski for example and i just find it sad that and i agree that ben has said certain um, objectively stupid things about nutrition in the past but that shouldn't be a reason to discount anything and everything that he says or does like i kind of get it but at the same time i don't right yeah and it's i think i think greg knuckles said this at one point when i was talking to him he was like you can't really hold stuff to people anything they've written or posted outside of like two years or more because you know people change their minds like as a scientist I change my mind all the time. Like there could be a handful of new studies come out and I'm like, oh, well, you know, kind of looks like I was wrong. And everything I wrote back then is also wrong. And yeah, that's okay. I can't tell everyone that read it that, you know, I've now updated my opinion, but maybe if I write another article, do a podcast or something, then, you know, that helps. But you still don't reach everybody. So yeah. And the funny thing is, do you know who Alex Viada is? Yes, yes. Yeah, so um, Alex has been at uh, Ben's gym a couple of, I guess, months ago now. Like, Alex is apparently preparing for a bodybuilding comp and Ben wants to do a triathlon and (laughs) they are helping each other out. And I asked Alex about it and he said that, well, for muscle growth, yeah, internal focus and execution is way more important than any of the uh, stuff usually people worry about, like rep range or volume parameters or exercise selection or any of that. Like, it's so weird in a sense that and the tables are turning right now but for a long time like especially it was in that um, i don't know five seven year period when powerlifting just became so popular that when lane started transitioning from bodybuilding to powerlifting and bryce left bodybuilding and then just everything started to be about the weights you were lifting and everyone just threw out the my muscle connection out the window that doesn't matter and all, all that matters is the weights you're lifting and it's just shifts and uh, trends that kind of people sway into one extreme or the other it's hard to get any um not attention but like if you're in the middle on everything it's you're not like oh you know so and so thinks this about everything and 
that's not really like exciting, right? So I think that's part of it. And it's also people don't put themselves in extreme camps. The people who listen to them or follow them do be like, oh, you know, Lane thinks this and this and he's so extreme. Well, you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe he's not that extreme. Maybe it's just that person's interpretation of what he's seeing. So that's something else just to keep in mind. Even Ben has made a video recently called Progressive Overload is Bullshit. Then I heard him on the podcast and he said, well, I know it pisses people off. <laughs> that's why exactly I, I called it that. Because he wanted to attract attention, but if you if you watch the video or if you um, listen to the podcast, and I did, he said that of course it matters how much weight you're lifting, but it only matters after you have ensured that you have proper execution and you are putting that tension where you want to put it. <laughs> so example he was using was a dumbbell fly. So let's say you are using the um, 10 kilo dumbbells, whatever, and you have only a slight bend in your elbows, and then you go up to the 12 kilo dumbbells, but then you reduce essentially that moment arm, so you essentially form a 90 degree angle with your elbows. So you have reduced the distance between the dumbbell and your shoulders essentially by 50%. So even though you are using heavier dumbbells, the load that you're placing on the muscle is essentially less. So that was his point all along, that if you don't keep execution constant, then you essentially don't deserve and you have no right to use heavier weights. And with that, I, I agree fully. Yeah, I actually have... Some athletes where they buy into the progressive overload a little bit too much, where you can see their form start to break down because they're trying to increase weight. And it's like, well, you know, it, it might take you a couple of mesocycles to increase that lat pull down, you know, a couple of kilos. So just focus on your, you know, your mind muscle connection, you're feeling it in the right places and your form's getting better. Maybe your RPE is dropping a little bit. So there are lots of ways we can kind of quantify and follow improvements. Oh yeah. Like people forget that it should be progressive tension overload, not progressive ego overload like i told <laughs> a guy at the gym a couple of days ago just because you are putting more plates on the leg press that doesn't mean that your leg muscles suddenly become scared of the weight and <laughs> they start growing that's not how it works anyway just to get back to a bit more um, of the theoretical concepts do you think there could be a body part specific um, effect of periodization because i think i've even seen some studies that for the upper body periodization work more for the lower body i might be confusing things but do you think there could be um body part specific effect or or if not body part but at least an exercise specific effect to different periodization strategies yeah so in my articles for aarr the meta-analysis that i've kind of concluded with showed it very very slight benefit for maybe linear periodization in the squat and undulating periodization in the bench press like it's not anything that's going to make a huge difference but i think that probably does exist uh, muscle specific exercise specific types of things but we will i don't know if we'll ever have the data to say you know that it definitely exists you know what i mean just because of the study kind of design that has to occur. The fact that, you know, it doesn't really, you're talking about maybe 5% max difference. If you say for your, your quads or your hamstrings, you find the perfect, you know, periodization or perfect rep scheme. I don't know that it matters enough for us to ever figure it out, basically. But it probably does. Something is probably different. Yeah, that's why I, um, I try not to ignore the observations of experienced coaches and practitioners because if they have seen a particular trend or the same thing repeat over and over again with hundreds of athletes in the absence of scientific evidence or research-based evidence we can't discredit that and I think that's valuable insight and uh, Mike is again one of that's why I like his approach because He's not only um, like he's a scientist, but he's also a practitioner and he tries to <laughs> find the best methods that work. And for example, his body part specific frequency recommendations just makes sense. I mean, I find it so astonishing when I see guys use the same, well, volume, but even the frequency for something like calves and then for something like their back or glutes or something so you have a tiny tiny muscle that uh, barely <laughs> feels the damage so to speak especially if you have a muscle that um, doesn't go through a whole lot of eccentric damage so i guess i could do 
side delts daily <laughs> five sets and um, be fine whereas if i try to do that with glutes for example with the lounge or something like that ooh, that would be a nasty experience uh, yeah definitely i haven't read the, the specific chat i'll have to go back through that and my long list of reading <laughs> with regards to mike's uh, writings yeah yeah just to, just to get a better idea he has that um volume landmarks hub something like that and he has written an article like i think for each muscle group by this point and like that's so valuable information that he just puts it out for free even if you don't do it and i don't think that he would recommend doing it verbatim but simply if you just <laughs> give it some thought and you think about it and even if you apply those concepts to your training then then that could help you out tremendously and by that i don't mean you specifically just the people in general <laughs> yeah no, I understand. Yeah, I definitely, I agree. Because the gap between the things I consider or probably you consider and the the things that a general gym goer would do, like the other day I trained a girl and she was even astonished when I told her that her workout routine should be based around exercises that target the muscle groups she's trying to work. Like she had an arm day and then a chest day and I was like, why? Well, is that wrong? Well, uh, it's not wrong. It's just I'm not sure it moves you closer to the the goals you have. <laughs> what do you want? Well, uh, bigger glutes and more toned legs. Well, okay. <laughs> and I'm sure bicep curls will get you there. Yeah, there's definitely a, a, still a gap between the, the general population, the evidence-based fitness people that I, I try to close. Because when I teach these classes, like these students don't, they're not exposed to hardly any of the stuff that kind of you and I are, are exposed to it. It's it's sad, especially if they want to go into some kind of exercise physiology type setting where th this would be beneficial. So I'm hoping that we keep getting better and better at it, especially with social media. Yeah, definitely. And um, again, like I understand that the stuff we discussed here is kind of minutia. Of course, it's important for us, but in the overall context of, of an average individual, it's still minutia. And um, if we try to round up this whole topic of periodization, especially as it relates to bodybuilding, because uh, that's what I'm most interested about. And I would imagine most people who are listening to this would be interested in um, what would be the practical takeaway when it comes to periodization itself not necessarily this or that strategy okay so that the take home for periodization is you should probably be doing some type of periodization because we definitely know that if you stick to a set a very specific set and rep scheme that it'll just become monotonous right so periodization allows that variation to allow us not to get bored to focus on specifics, uh, whatever you're training towards. Obviously, you want your training to always be working towards your main goal. And, you know, try different different strategies, right? So if there, there's not a, a difference, per se, then, you know, you could use all of them or part of them or a few, and, and that's okay. So I think that would be the kind of take home. Oh, yeah, and one thing that just got reminded of, now that you mentioned being bored, and I've seen another study that uh, the guys reviewed in mass was a recent one that um, apparently showed a benefit for selecting, so auto-regulating exercise selection essentially, instead of having the predetermined exercise that you have to do, they... Um, selected exercise they wanted to do for a particular muscle group and apparently that's led to better strength and um, muscle growth. Yeah, I actually do that with my athletes and it's it's funny because I just set up a, a block for a physique athlete and he sends me an email back and he's like, you didn't put any exercises in there. And I was like, well, yeah, but depending on your gym, I'll look at them and your preferences, you know, the research now says, like you mentioned, you can kind of pick what you want to do. So I'll adjust some things, but like I'm just, you know, coaching you via other methods now. I only train clients at our gym, so I know the equipment they are they have available and they usually just give them two exercises. Especially if someone doesn't just wants a training program, then just going to give them usually two options, A or B, choose whichever you want. And if then we communicate further and they don't like either of those, well, then I'm going to give them a third one because if they don't like the exercise, they are not going to do it. So... That was a great, um, a great discussion and we got into more practical things, but I'm sure the listeners won't mind because ultimately that's much more useful than um, simply discussing 
theoretical concepts that they have no use for. So if anyone is interested in checking out the content you put out, um, maybe your coaching, the work you do with the strength guys, where can they find you? What are your social media accounts? Okay, so I have a website that I personally built that is not awesome, but it gets the job done called fitnessandphysiology.com. You can find me on thestrengthguys.com also for coaching. And then I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, pretty much everywhere. Usually some version of brob21, but you know, you can pretty much put it in Google, Brandon Roberts, PhD, muscle, and all of those will come up. Awesome. And I will link those in the description to make people's job easier. And uh, with that, we have a right to the final question that we always end our episodes on. And that is simply, what is your definition of success? Um, I knew this one was coming, <laughs> not going to lie. So, so I might have thought about it a little bit already. So success in it to be is actually constantly failing but learning from failure such that you can have more success in science. I think probably like 40% of our experiments turn out as expected. And so we're constantly failing. And, you know, when you hit a success, it's, it's wonderful, but you really have to kind of get happy about it. So I think that's my very weird definition of success is just constantly failing and learning from it no i think that's a great message actually and um, i think if people started enjoying their failures and learning from them then their lives would be much much better awesome well then i would like to thank you for this awesome conversation and for giving up your time to do this and um, i look forward to chat again in the future okay well thanks for having me on i appreciate it my pleasure take care so that was episode 9 of the Muscle Engineer Podcast with Dr. Brandon Roberts. I hope you've liked it and found it helpful. I've linked all of Brandon's social media accounts and where you can get in contact with him for coaching in the description of this episode, where you'll also find links to the meta-analysis we've mentioned, as well as another recent systematic review of periodized versus non-periodized approaches for muscle growth. Now, as far as my own takeaways go, here are my top 3 key reminders. First of all, Periodization is a minor component compared to other fundamental considerations for hypertrophy, such as proper execution, selecting specific exercises for your goal, and making sure you're applying overload to your training, meaning it becomes harder in some shape or form over time. The second is that periodization is a concept, not a concrete training plan or program, and as such, there is no right or wrong way of implementing it. Like we discussed in the episode, there is no definitive answer as to which periodization model is best for muscle growth. So try out all of them and see which one you like and respond to best. Third and final point is that periodization becomes more and more important as you become more and more experienced. For a while, you don't need any of it. You can get very good results simply by showing up and putting in some hard work. However, over time the gains will slow down. And that's when fine-tuning your program becomes more and more important. Okay, that sums up my own conclusions. Now, another super cool thing happened this week. Just yesterday, Greg Knuckles released, per his usual style, an absolutely fantastic monster article, which is essentially a meta-analysis of all of the studies ever conducted on periodization in an easy-to-understand blog format. I'll link that too in the description of the episode, so make sure to read it and let me know what you thought. As always, I want to remind all of you that I don't make any money from the production of these episodes, so if you find them valuable enough that you want to repay me in some manner, you can share it with someone who will enjoy it and find it valuable, and you can leave a review on iTunes or Podbean or wherever you get your podcast from. Any feedback is highly appreciated, so feel free to reach out on any of my social media accounts. Thank you in advance. And that concludes episode 9 of the podcast. Until next week, take care.